listening to Giant Size, the comics podcast that believes that comics are for everybody, and there is a comics podcast out there for everyone out there. I am Moises Chuyan, and joining me in our triumphant return on this 49th episode of the show is the Foggy Nelson to my Everett K. Ross, the one, the only, Mr. John Golson. How are you, John? I'm doing great. I, now I'm curious if Everett Ross and Foggy Nelson have actually met each other. I, that's a great focus for an upcoming issue of Marvel Team-Up. Why not have Foggy Nelson and Everett K. Ross go on an adventure together? Everybody's been wanting it, clamoring for it ever since Daredevil hit Netflix, ever since Black Panther hit theaters. I, I'm, I'm glad that there's one white guy in a suit that, that white kids have to cosplay. Finally, marginalized white kids have a superhero character that they can relate to, John. Yes. Uh, yeah, Everett Ross is, is the one. He's the, he's the new hotness amongst the <laughs> amongst the honkies John. we all love him hey we, you, we we talk about him while we eat our many sandwiches and you used it as a as a self-descriptor so you know i don't feel like we've overstepped any boundaries john we've been gone for ages mm-hmm. uh, my life has gone through many changes yours has as well yes we're sitting in the new esn world headquarters here in austin texas with sound paneling acoustic foam all around us on the fancy studio mics recording in person again i've missed this i love recording in person with you it it is a completely different experience than uh than than fighting with skype and hoping that you don't sound like you're calling in from the negative zone um john how how uh how more appropriate a way can we come back out of the ashes then talk about uh, Marvel Comics coming back out of the ashes in the late 90s. Do you think that's an appropriate topic to cover? Oh, yes, definitely. Although I I never came as close to declaring bankruptcy. Yeah, me either. Okay. Uh, so so let, let's let's take our, our listeners back to the, the topic of this episode, which is the triumphant launch of Marvel Knights um, and uh, a conversation that I had at Fan Expo Canada now uh, a year and a half ago with uh, Marvel Chief Creative Officer Joe Quesada about the launch of Marvel Knights, about, in particular, Black Panther writer Christopher Priest and how Joe really owes his entire career in comics uh, to Chris Priest. Before we get to all that, though, let, let us let us take things back to this near apocalyptic time for Marvel Comics. What what kind of shape was Marvel Comics in 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 this what we call the maximum security crossover era of Marvel Comics? I believe that shape would be called bad, real it bad, was bad shape. Marvel had uh, sort of imploded. The whole market had imploded uh, in the early nineties. And Marvel, kind of looking for a lifeline in the mid-90s, was able to get a little bit of uh, like a nice little sales boost by turning over the reins of some of their more well-known titles to Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee. Jim Lee took over. uh, He oversaw Fantastic Four and Iron Man, and Liefeld oversaw Captain America and Avengers. And it was a nice shot in the arm, and it proved that conceptually that bringing in these big creators, this, this idea could work. Um, and so, in the late 90s, uh, when Marvel bankruptcy was at Marvel's door, um, they did the same thing, only slightly different this time. Uh, instead of turning over some big names, they turned over some names that were uh, properties that had been sitting for a little while, maybe some of them more stagnant than others. Uh, Daredevil, Black Panther, Punisher. Um, some the of Inhumans, that, the which Inhumans, had, yeah. had their own book at one point, but it had never... Mm-hmm done terribly well as a Fantastic Four spinoff. Yeah, so you have these books that are that are well-known. They are brands, but they're brands that have cooled a little bit. And uh, I think the thinking there was that, and if I had to guess, 
to some degree, it was probably the fact that like X-Men's going to sell what X-Men's going to sell, you know, so why not boost some other title that may not be hitting the same numbers as like we can we can already get X amount to show up for Avengers month after month. Let's see if we can give a shot in the arm to the rest of the line. And again, they gave they gave Casada uh they, they invited him on board, he oversaw the books, and they gave him a lot of creative freedom to uh, do the books as he saw fit, which I'm, I, I know, not I'm sure, I, I know is part of the appeal of taking over the characters that he did was that there was not necessarily like an editor looking over his shoulder to make sure that what he did in humans fit in with some plans they had for Fantastic Four a year from now. He got these characters because it was very much like, these are ones that I know I can mess with without disrupting plans in other books. Uh, and And yeah, and was able to the effects of which this this you know this publishing shot in the arm the effects of which are still felt at the company to this very day yeah imagine that uh, making comics that are geared toward getting people to actually read them not picking them up because of speculator collecting or this or that holofoil hologram cover or something along those lines and it's bizarre because we're seeing this weird state of the industry as we speak right now where there are these ridiculous retailer incentives for special variants and all kinds of things from both the big two publishers. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, and I, 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 it is rare that I don't look in on comics, Twitter in a given day and see people worrying about the same thing. And comics as a business isn't even in the shape that it was in the late nineties. I mean, in terms of, of what thing of what a, of what a a good selling book was selling then that tops out the top selling books in this day and age um but at the same time it, it was a very different business landscape you know marvel wasn't owned by disney where the ip is being exploited in various different ways dc uh wasn't uh wasn't in a similar position with warner brothers where they were making tons of movies and more than just you know a couple of cartoons um, so the, the bulk of this uh, episode is going to be is going to be a combination of these two Q&A's that I did with Joe Casada at Fan Expo Canada. Um, and uh, I, I in particular, the story about how Christopher Priest, previously known as Jim Owsley, writer on Black Panther, um, uh, who who really made that character the one that is setting box office records literally as we speak across the country. Um, the, the role that 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 guy in particular had on Casada's career and you know without Christopher Priest Marvel Knights would not have happened and this creative renaissance at Marvel would not have happened um, and that notion of of really matching the right teams and the right creatives that people could follow uh, to things uh, it, it would not have taken hold the way that it did uh, so John uh, without further ado uh, what do you say we uh, we let these folks just listen to Joe talk for a little while now, Joe, I, I was introduced to your work thanks to Marvel Knights, uh, the the big uh, I, I feel like it was a it was the tent revival of what made some of these characters so great. That, that tent revival. I like yeah. that. Nice. It was it was I, you know, I, I don't want to go overboard, but it was nearly a religious experience. Let me be honest. Uh, but we you know, we had Daredevil, we had Black Panther, we had the Inhumans, we had the Punisher. Uh, you were you were given this small stable of characters and told here, just, you know, run wild, do do what you want with it. What what led to you getting the reins that ended up you know proving you into the the position that you find yourself in today? Um, you know what what it what it really came down to was that um, 
I had my small company called Defend Comics with Jimmy Palmiotti uh, and, and, uh, and our managing editor, uh, uh, Nancy DeKeegan, who, who uh, eventually became Nancy Casada and my, the managing editor of my life. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that was a smart business move. Uh, believe me, trust me, it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was the right strategic. If you talk about one thing that I've ever done that really like saved my career, that was it. Um, but you know, we had our small publishing company. Uh, Marvel was in Chapter 11. They just come off of the uh, Heroes Reborn thing with Image and stuff, and 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 the company was still shaky. The whole industry was shaky. I mean, li literally, uh, running my own independent company at that time, um, every month the sales would come in, and everyone in the comics industry would go like, "My God, I can't believe how low sales are. This has to be rock bottom." Then the next month, and they were lower and lower, and we just didn't know where rock bottom was. So the assumption could be, rock bottom is zero, and we're all looking for jobs. You know as dental assistants or something, you know? Uh, so uh, Marvel sought Jimmy and I out. Uh, they realized that as a small three-person company, we were, we managed to get a lot of press. We managed to do a, a lot of uh, uh, sort of guerrilla marketing and, 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 and anything it took to promote our books. Uh, and we had a really good reputation in the industry uh, as sort of, you know, decent, solid human beings. Uh, and uh, and and they, I remember, me, I remember meeting with the then president of Marvel, uh, gentleman by, by the name of Joey Joe Calamari. We called him Joey Squid. Uh, everybody, you gotta call him Joey yeah, the Squid. Joey Joey the Squid sounds Joey the like squid. the next big you know bad that, that Daredevil's gonna go after. Yeah, yeah well, well you, you know at that point I'm either doing a deal with Marvel or the Mafia. I don't know, it's one or the other. But <laughs> <laughs> but I assumed it was Marvel. So uh, so so Joe was was great, and and he was just. At that point, you know, it's, you know, it, it was desperation, right? So, uh, and sometimes, you know, desperation can be the mother of invention. So, Joe talked to us and said, you know, if I was to bring you guys in to Marvel, you know, what could you do? What would you do? Um, and he left it there. And, you know, we had this really nice dinner, get to know us, know each other dinner. And, uh, and then he left us to think about it. So, but the seeds were planted, and, and I remember that night, Jimmy and I, we went back to my apartment. I, I lived like two blocks from Marvel, and, uh, and we sit there, and we're like, Pacey, like, what, what do you want to do? What do you think? Well, he's obviously offering us a packaging deal, right? And so, so, so how many books should we take? And I remember literally remember telling Jimmy, we should ask for all of them. <laughs> he's like, what are you give talking about? Give us the whole about? line. Just give what us everything. What are you talking about? I said, Let's ask for all of them. Let's tell him that we could be co-editor-in-chiefs and run the entire division. He's like, they're never going to give us that. I said, I know. But then we asked for four books, and they'll give us four books. <laughs> like, and, you know, and, and this is what Jimmy did, and I did everything at that point. You know, I mean, we, we'd, we'd shoot for the moon, and, and, and we'd spitball for each other, and, and uh, that was just one of those ideas. Okay, so what do we want to ask for? All right, we, we both loved The Punisher. There was no Punisher book out, right? Uh, I, I had an incredible affection for the Black Panther since I was a little kid. Uh, so, and there was no Black Panther book. Uh, we thought Inhumans. There's no Inhumans book. Uh, and, and one of the reasons we were thinking in this way was because we had also known internally what Heroes Reborn had done to the staff at Marvel when core books were just pulled away from them and gone out west to people that, w that had abandoned the company a long time ago. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that we were treading on ground where there was nowhere to go but up, right? So, and then, but Daredevil was the linchpin for me. Daredevil was my Marvel character. Uh, and as it turns out, Daredevil was on the brink of cancellation. 
So we came back to Joe with these four books, and you know, we thought about it, and then it took a little while, but then it, it came back, and you know, the deal was struck, and those were the four books we got. So, so with Daredevil in particular as the the crown jewel of your uh, your kingdom of four books, you you did something that was not normal then. You brought in this this wild outsider from the crazy land called Hollywood or New Jersey, depending on yes. on where you want to say Kevin Smith is from. Uh, did did that did that name come to the top of your mind? Is this is the writer that uh, that I want to you know take a shot at? Uh, no, no, no. I wanted I wanted Frank Miller. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> hey, look, it's I, I don't I don't think Kevin would be offended. <laughs> no, Ke Kevin was the first guy because we we had met Kevin prior to this when when he was uh, um, filming More Rats, and uh, we became very very good friends and and we had talked about someday doing something in comics together and and he lamented the fact. I remember going to lunch with him at, at some diner in, in, in Red Bank, and he was sitting there going, "I can't believe it, man! You know, I, I got, I got, you know, I got Clerks, I got Morats, I got these, all this stuff going on. Nobody asked me to do a comic, and I, 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 I my stuff is just about comics, and nobody had asked me. It's one of those things where, it, and sometimes, you know, I, I think people are just afraid to ask because they feel the answer is going to be no. So when this came around, Kevin was the first person who called, and uh, and he agreed immediately. Absolutely going to do it. Absolutely going to do it. So, um, and, and I remember a, f a very fateful moment because uh, Kevin, now, mind you, Daredevil was, you know, what Spider-Man is to Marvel as a whole, Daredevil was that to Marvel Knights. He was the most recognizable character of the four that we had chosen, and he was he was the linchpin, and he was the book that I was going to draw, right? So, it, we were, I mean, it was our launch book. It was the first one out of the box. We had no script, nothing. Um, Kevin couldn't come up with an idea, and then he calls me. We've struck the deal with Marvel. His papers are signed. We got Kevin Smith doing this book. Everybody's really excited. I get a call from Kevin. Can't do it, man. Can't do it. <laughs> Kevin, are there any kids in the audience? Can we? Can we? Kevin, go what the can fuck we go are you doing? There what we do go. You, what the fuck are you talking about? We're gonna. We're gonna go Kevin Smith rated. He's got his own rating. Joe, I'm sorry, man. I, I can't. I you just, fucking I just, do it, Joe. I just don't have. I don't have the ideas. I don't know what to do. I don't. <sighs> and and Jimmy and I are good at playing good cop, bad cop, right? And I was like, oh, man. all right. I don't know what to do. I'm sorry, I let you down. It's okay, Kev. Don't don't worry about it, Kev. Don't worry about it. Click. I tell Jimmy, what the what what what? So Jimmy calls Kevin up. It's like the next day, a couple days later. You let your friend down. You suck. <laughs> What's wrong with you? How can you do that? Next day I get a call from Kevin. Hey, man. I got an idea for Daredevil. <laughs> All you need, you just need to insert some Catholic guilt into it, and Kevin Smith is off to the races. It was great. It was unreal. Um, but even with that, right? So, so, okay, so we go. We're promoting Kevin, the whole thing. Kevin starts uh, uh, starts filming. Um, I'm sorry, you know, I, I, I take it back. I met Kevin, which came first, uh, more rats or chasing Amy? More, more rats. Right. So then, then we did something chasing. Right. And then he started filming Dogma. And the deadline's coming up. No script. Days go by. No script. No script. No script. Oh. Finally, um, I get three paragraphs from Kevin. This is kind of what, maybe it was two paragraphs. This is kind of what the story is supposed to be, but no script. And now we get to the point where 
if I don't start drawing now, that first book is going to ship late. And that's, that, that would have been the end of the imprint. It would have been over. None of this would have. So I just start drawing. I start drawing a story based on the two or three paragraphs that Kevin gave me. You took a, a story that was going to be full script, and suddenly you're doing yeah. it Marvel style. And by the way, I think these two or three paragraphs were for two or three issues. So you know, it was it just had to break it down, and it was the only way to do it. Um, and then eventually, Kevin ended up dialoguing those issues. Um, but we ended up falling behind somewhere around issue three or four. We started shipping late. I told this story to a fan later earlier today, where. Um, before working at Marvel Knights, this is why I married my wife. Before working at Marvel Knights, um, eh, it was a bit of a deadline problem. You know what I mean? I, I just I wasn't getting stuff. I was too detail oriented. I wasn't getting stuff done the way it should have been done. So I had a reputation, and people were already saying, "Oh, Marvel Knights going to ship late because of you know Joe." Um, and then we eventually did ship late. Some like, like I said, it might have been issue four that we shipped late, and. Um, the, the, the reason for that was because I just couldn't get the scripts. And I'd finally gotten the scripts, but I was so behind schedule at that point uh, that there was no making it up. I'm sorry, my phone's buzzing here if anybody hears that. Hey, you're a very busy, important what man. I tell you? Mickey Mouse is calling, and yeah. he's going to have to wait. <laughs> um, that's probably Kevin Smith calling me. Like, what the fuck, dude? Man, I got listening devices in that fucking theater, dude. Don't <laughs> say that shit. So... Uh, but what happened was at that, at that point was that the, the last thing I wanted to do, because there was so much stuff about guy from Hollywood's coming to the comics, you know what I mean? He's going to screw it up for everybody. So I didn't want to say Kevin was late. So I, I had to go out there and say, eh, it's me. I'm really behind. It's me. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Just, I'm not happy enough um, with my own work. i got to go back. Yeah, but also somewhere around the fourth issue, and, and Kevin remember telling me this as well, you could tell that he all of a sudden got it and started understanding how to write for comics. And those scripts from that point on became so unbelievably good to work with. Um, but listen, if it wasn't for Kevin, again, I wouldn't be sitting here. I don't think Marvel would be in a lot of the position it's in because he was, he took a shot. He took a shot with, with me, with Jimmy, with Marvel Knights, with a company that was in chapter 11. And again, you know, he, he, he just started to really peak as a, as a creative force, as a director, as a personality. And he was jumping from the big pool into the little pool. And that's really risky because if you fail in the little pool, that does affect what you do in the, in the bigger, you know, the bigger industry. So, uh, and because of Kevin, I think a lot of other directors and screenwriters started to take note and say, hmm, maybe I want to play in that world too. So uh, he was so instrumental to the fact that comics, really, I really do feel this. And it's not even a Marvel thing. This is a comics general thing. He is so instrumental in the history of comics, and nobody says this enough, for the fact that comics are still here. Because, you know, even when I was breaking into comics, working for DC, Valiant, Marvel, every comic book company, and then owning my own comic book company, everybody knew, because Marvel was the leading comic book publisher, that as Marvel goes, so goes the industry. If Marvel fails, goes bankrupt, goes out of business, very hard to hold an industry together because they're, you know, they're the, they're the biggest manufacturer of comics, you know? And I don't say that because I'm at Marvel. I used to say this when I wasn't at Marvel. Uh, so the fact that Kevin was there and, and put a flag in the stand in the sand and brought in, I mean, so many new readers came in because of him. Uh, younger readers, too. Um, that uh, I, I really feel it's, it's, it's under, underappreciated and understated how important he was. I came in. I came in on the strength of his brand. I was one of these high school, you know, angry young men who liked Kevin Smith movies, yeah. and that that brought me in. And I was like, fine, I'm gonna buy. I'm gonna buy all four of these books. Yeah. 
uh, if, if you'll indulge me, a couple more Marvel, Marvel Knights questions. We're going to get some questions from you guys. Uh, but getting, getting Christopher Priest, Jim Owsley, right. some people might know him under that name. He, a man of a thousand names and a thousand, uh, a thousand talents. You know why he named himself Priest, right? You know this? I, sounds like a story that this audience it's might want to hear. I, I remember calling, uh, I, I, have a, I have history with Jim. Uh, good history, not, not, not like not, not bad history, like you know, he dated or something. I got this scar. <laughs> I got this scar that he gave me. And uh, uh, I remember calling him up, and, and, I, and I was like, Jim, I'm like, Jim what, what is it? Christopher Priest? He's like, long story short, I just got divorced. When I married my wife, I told her if she ever left me, I'd become a priest. That was it. <laughs> and, and he literally did it. He says he did it out of spite. He did it out of spite. Like, Fuck it. I'm going to call myself priest. I told her. <laughs> so you, you had him in mind, you know, from the point that you made the deal that you were doing Black Panther? Yeah. Um, uh, well, well, I, like I said, I have history with, with he's always Jim to me, Jim Owsley. Um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you my Jim Owsley story. So, because it, it's, it, I think it's, it's, it's another reason why I'm here. Uh, there's so many reasons why I'm here, you know, uh, but Jim, Jim, I think, encapsulated it when I first encountered him. Um, when I, how I broke into comics is a long story in, in itself, but I was coloring for Valiant. And you are my favorite Super Mario Brothers colorist. I didn't realize I was a Joe Quesada fan until later. There you go. You see, I was coloring comic books, uh, and, and, but, but Valiant was doing something interesting and, and in, 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 in a lot of ways kind of dumb. Uh, they were, we were hand coloring actual comic book pages, like, like painting them. Uh, it was incredibly time consuming. Now, I also broke in a little bit later than, than most people. I, I, I didn't really have an interest in doing comics until... You were, you were a musician. I was a musician for a very long time, yeah. So, uh, so I, I came in with a certain, I guess, sort of more adult acumen than a lot of people that were working there at the time. So, and they had a real bullpen atmosphere where people were actually in-house coloring these books. And for whatever reason, they thought it was prudent <laughs> to pay artists by the hour. <laughs> I'm sorry, I gotta laugh about that. Well, pay, I mean, artists, <laughs> pay artists by the hour, all right? So you got all these young artists, right? And we're all sitting there, and we're all painting books. And by the way, so this has gotta be 1990, 19, right? So uh, think of it in terms of 1990, because even in terms of today, they were paying us $14 an hour to, yes. 1990? To color $14? comic books. I left a really good job I had to just, $14 an hour, hell, I'm not making that. I mean, that. you convert that to Canadian, that's a lot of money. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and uh, and uh, a lot of plastic money, by the way, because your, your, your shit is plastic. Uh, it feels like it. I swear, I can, it's slippery. Uh, it doesn't really smell like maple. Is that true? Is, is that a real thing? It's true. Uh, I'm getting yes. I'm getting no. See, I think Nobody it's. A, agrees. I think it's a. I think it's just a thing to. It's a thing to get pe to, to make people like it's scratch the and smell your money, right? Ah, look at that. Look at that hill. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, it's forty dollars an hour. So I'm sitting there and and I, and I'm coloring and you know I'm doing about four pages a day, right? Because I'm thinking this stuff has to get done. And it, it, I do four pages and these other young artists are literally noodling these pages and like half a page a day, a page a day. And I remember going out to lunch with these guys, like a whole group of us, we all go out to lunch and I'm like, guys, you know this is unsustainable. You realize you guys have got to get faster. It's unsustainable. Lo and behold, like three months into my stint there, 
all of a sudden, the elevator doors open and guys in suits come in, right? And I'm like, okay, this is good. Like three days of closed door meetings with Shooter and, and Steve Bazarski and those guys who ran the company, and the guys in suits leave. They're gone. And then Shooter's like, uh, company meeting. Okay, so we all file into an office. Lo and behold, uh, yeah, we're not cost efficient, and they literally fired three quarters of the staff. Sorry, guys, you're gone, right? Being one of the newer guys, I'm gone. So he was just left, Shooter was just left with the people he started the company with. Uh, because it was unsustainable. $14, I mean, nothing was, it was just, they were hemorrhaging money doing Super Mario Brother comics that nobody was buying. Um, I mean, I bought them, but I didn't buy enough of them. Yeah. That's, that's Thank the you. lesson. Thank you for your support. Look, I tried. Uh, I tried. <laughs> so, uh, so now I, I am I'm unemployed. But I sort of knew this was coming. And I had been socking the money away. And $14 an hour, I had, a, I, I had minimal rent. I was, I was living with my girlfriend at the time. Uh, so so I, I looked at my budget. I looked at everything I had. And it w one of the things that, that, I, was, that I was always, um, well, I, I'm, di I'm digressing. Uh, and I knew that I had just enough money to survive two months of unemployment, which, which well, I, I could pay my rent for two months, uh, which meant I would give myself six weeks to find a comics job because I knew that I could get something in two weeks. I could find another job somewhere, probably retail. So, so I, I, I took those six weeks and, and I gave myself four weeks to put together a penciling portfolio uh, using whatever knowledge I'd, I, I, I used to ask a lot of questions of artists and pencilers because I started to think that this is really what I wanted to do. So I took four weeks and I put together that portfolio. Then I went back to Valiant Comics and I talked to Art Nichols, who was the art director at the time, and I said, Art, I know you guys aren't hiring anybody right now, but here's my penciling portfolio. Do you know anybody I could go see? He said, nope. I'm like, what do you mean no? He's like, well, when I left Marvel to come work here, everybody at Marvel hates me. I burned those bridges. And, and when I left DC to go work for Marvel, I burned those bridges. I don't know anybody. And he's like, wait, 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 I do know somebody. He just got hired by DC. It's this guy named Jim Owsley. He's an editor over there. Let me give him a call. Okay, so I'm standing right next to Art, and I hear him, you know, he calls up, hey, Jim, it's Art. Yeah, how you doing, man? Hey, listen, I got this guy whose portfolio, and I, and I literally, it's a Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 right? No, no, really, he, he, yeah, you, you're gonna wanna meet him. Okay, great, thanks. No, he, like Jim's just yelling at him on the phone, like, why, I don't want to see anybody. And he, Art goes, he'd love to see you. <laughs> love to see you. Okay. So I literally run down to D.C., run up to D.C. And uh, I get there, and, and, you know, I ask a receptionist for Mr. Owsley, and she says, oh, great. She calls him up, says, okay, great, where are you? She's like, he'll come out to see you. Okay, so this guy's even seeing me in his office. He's gonna meet me in the lobby. <laughs> so, so I wait a little while, wait a little while. Here comes this guy, Jim Owsley, and Jim is like sweating and he's cantankerous and he's like, yeah, 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 Art told me I got to see you. All right, let me see your portfolio. I'm like, okay. So I open up my portfolio, he goes, oh, oh, oh. He's like, oh, you're actually good. I'm like, oh, thanks. <laughs> well, uh, he's like, listen, I'm gonna be honest with you. I just got hired here, man, I'm new. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he'd worked at Marvel for many years prior. He's like, I, I'm new. I drive a bus most of the time. And uh, so I'm back in comics, and I, I only, I, I got handed two really crap books. You know, they're, they're, they're TSR licenses, Dungeons and & Dragons and Spelljammer. And, uh, you know, I, I got some stuff in development, but it's going to take me months. 
Um, I'll tell you what. You see this book, Spelljammer, you see these three characters, just give me a cover. I'll call it an inventory cover and, you know, come back when you're done. And, you know, all right? So you got something. I'm like, cool. I got my first DC job. So I run home and I do this cover immediately. And the next morning, I just show up at DC. And, uh, hey, I'm here to see Mr. Owsley. Okay. Receptionist calls Owsley. Yeah, that guy. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and she's like, he'll be out to see you in a moment. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, and then he comes out. And I show him the cover. He's like, oh, that's great. This is great. Fantastic. He's like, uh, I'll, I'll give you a voucher. Fill out the voucher. And, uh, and I got nothing else for you, man. I'm sorry. I'm like, okay. And I gave him, like, my saddest, big, like, sad Bugs Bunny eyes. Those, you know, like. And he looks at me. He's like, you don't have a job, do you? <laughs> I'm like, uh, no, but in by next week I have to start looking. So, yeah, it's kind of over for me. And he's like, ah. Okay, let me let me go and talk to Terry Cunningham, who's in charge of trafficking, and so oh no, Bob Greenberger, who's in charge of trafficking. Maybe there's an open assignment. He's like, but I'm gonna be honest with you, man. But, but the chances that there is an open assignment, and that they're gonna give it to some guy that just walked in off the street, not good. But you know, I'll see what what's out there. So I must have sat in the lobby 45 minutes an hour. And, uh, and I'm like, well, this is certainly not good. Uh, but I couldn't understand why it would take so long for him to get an answer. Uh, the phone rings. The receptionist picks it up, hangs up. She says, uh, Mr. Owsley would like to see you in his office. Okay, wow. So I make my way through, and I walk into the office, and, and there's Jim, and he's, you know, sweating and cantankerous as he is. And he's, uh, he says, um, let me ask you a question. What are the odds that while you're sitting out in the lobby, uh, I get a call from one of my artists on one of my two crappy books, and he uh, curses me out. We have a fight. He yells at me, and he quits. And, and I'm, thinking, I'm thinking to myself, based on what I see right now, probably pretty good. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I don't know. I, I, I guess, you know, chances, you know, it's pretty astronomical. He's like, what, what, are, the, what are the odds that I would give this job to a complete unknown who just walked into these offices yesterday. I said, um, I, I can't imagine those odds are really high. He's like, and he, I remember he pointed to me, he said, well, from this point on, consider yourself the luckiest son of a bitch in the history of comics. <laughs> and it's funny, right? But, but, but I will never forget that because from that point on, I had never wanted for work and every assignment I got was sort of the next step towards something else that I, I, that I was hoping to someday achieve. And literally, to this, sitting here right now, I am the luckiest son of a bitch in the history of comics. So that's my history with Jim Owsley. So when the Black Panther came around, uh, Jim had just started to come back into comics and work. You see how I tied that all in? You see how I did that? Um, I, was, I was watching you architect yeah, the whole thing. That was, that was a masterwork. And uh, thank you. And, uh, <coughs> and I couldn't think of anybody better to write Black Panther. Uh, so he was, the, he was the first and only person I called about this book. Uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, uh, and he just, you know, again, he, uh, the, the creation of, and to me, the, the greatest thing about Black Panther was not just the, the coming to America story, but it was the creation of Eric K. Ross, who was the fanboy in the book and, and, and actually could cross that line 
where he would he would make off-color and oftentimes racist remarks that the Black Panther had to just sort of, you know, hey, wake up, stop. You know what I mean? This is this is that's not the world. Uh, so yeah, so I, I, I think I think uh, I think Jim's take on that character to this day to this day remains. Uh, uh, even though Tanasi Coates is doing some amazing stuff, what Jim did was he brought the character back from the dead. That's really what he did. So. Yeah, and, and again, that, that's one of those examples of we were looking for, when we were going to launch Punisher out of Marvel Knights, we're, again, we're looking for new, fresh ideas on the character. Um, and the Punisher, up until that point, I mean, it, was, it was pretty one note. The Punisher was what Punisher is. Uh, and the book had, you know, gone the way of the dinosaurs. So um, when, when Chris Golden and Steve Snodowski came to us with that pitch, we thought, well, that's bizarre, it's weird, it's different, it's, it's, a, it's a good way to say, hey, we're doing something, we're, we're going for it here, you know? And it was also kind of a palate cleanser, because it, it just added some dimensions to Frank that were never seen before. Uh, so while that book was, you know, not necessarily, you know, it, it shocked a lot of people, so, and, and then we got Bernie Wrightson, so we were like, well, hell, you know, we gotta do this. Uh, and Bernie was a friend and, and another, you know, sort of dream creator that, that came aboard with us. Uh, but I also think that laid the seeds so that when, when Garth came in, um, Punisher was, you know, sort of going back to hardcore Frank and welcome back Frank. Uh, people were ready for that as well, you know what I mean? So I think one project led into the other. Uh, and then, you know, of course, you know, Garth took that and then basically redefined the character uh, and, and, and added that, you know, sort of you know, dark humor to it and, and Manucci, of course, who sad Manucci, but, uh, <laughs> but I love that character. So, yeah, uh, the, the, th the thinking was, let's try something different, you know? And then Garth came, and then when that was done, Garth came in, and, you know, then we, we tried Garth, and that worked out as well, so. <laughs> you know, I honestly don't know. Um, ultimately, I don't make those decisions. Uh, that, that's done by sales and marketing. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, you know, it's, it's, so much of it has to do with um, just today's fan, you know? Uh, they, uh, you get that a lot from older fans. Boy, I wish, I wish we could have the actual numbering back, right? Um, but so many people want to jump in on an issue one. And, and it also, it, you know, it's just, it helps sales. It really does. There is, there, uh, the, the <laughs> you know, atrophy is the way of the universe. Atrophy is the way of comics. It, it just, it, it goes without saying. From the, from the dawn of comic books, a number one will sell well, and especially, I'm oh sorry, let me tell you about, since the dawn of the direct market, because I don't think it really mattered in, back in the newsstand days, but, but a, you know, it's always been number one will sell great, number two will sell less, and so on and so forth. Sometimes you get lucky and a book will plateau, and it'll just stay there, we're like, okay, we're cool, right? And, but, but if you want to spike it, you put a number one on it. It's just, it's just the way of the world. Uh, so for those of us, myself included, who are OCD, it really sucks, but, um, but it, it, is, it is strictly done for the longevity of comics. It also helps them bring new readers, right? Because uh, for those of us that are, that are, you know, not accustomed to the world of comics, you know, when you walk into a comic shop, if you shop, you know, for, for, for hard copies, uh, looking at the wall, just walking into the store, and let's say you, you know, I, I heard about Squirrel Girl, I want to know, I want to get into Squirrel Girl, right? Uh, don't laugh, it happens. It's happening a lot. And you walk in and you are confronted with what I call the, the giant pizza of comics, right? Just so you, you don't know where you, your eye, to, you know, 
you know because you've been there. You know exactly what you're looking for. But for a new person, it's, it's daunting. So, so and, and, and for retailers, it's a lot of hard work too. So, you know, when a fan comes over and says, hey, I heard about this guy. Sure, let me start you out with number one or this trade paperback or whatever. So we're trying to make the, the shopping experience as simple as possible within a very complex story infrastructure. Because even just the fact going into a comic book, if you're a new reader, right, some, you know, 15, 60-year-old kid, and, and you walk in and you're like, fuck, man, there's like 50-some-odd years of Spider-Man. I, I can't catch up to that. So you have to make it palatable in some way where you could, you could say, here, jump in here. And you don't have to go backwards. If you want, you can but from here on is a good place for you to start. So that's a lot of the reason for the numbering, a lot of the reason for, uh, for relaunching certain storylines and, and the way that we do things. The trick, though, for us, um, and, 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 and this is where I do think we've been more successful in DC for years, is the fact that uh, when DC did Crisis back in the day, I thought it was a great story. It was perfect. And, and, and by the way, that's kind of when I got, got into DC. It was a perfect jumping on point for me. I said, okay, good, I'm going to start here. Because I don't have to worry about all that other stuff. And uh, unfortunately, when, when they did it once, and I thought it was, it was perfectly fine. But, but when we do a lot of these relaunches, we try not to say the stuff that happened in the past didn't happen, you know? Um, so it's necessarily a reboot. Uh, and like I like to say at Marvel, we don't have a crisis. So, you know. So. You make sure that everything counts. Yes. We try. Yeah, we, we really do. We, we have to keep that in mind. We, we don't want to necessarily break it all down if we can. So. Wow. You know, I, I, I get asked that question a lot. And, and I know this sounds stupid, but I, 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 I try not to look back too much. But I, but I also, um, the one thing I, I, and I preach this to my daughter. My daughter's 15 now, right? So she's like, oh, I don't want to hear it anymore. Uh, she doesn't want to hear anything right now, but uh, <laughs> it's 15. Uh, but one of the things I, I, I my, and, and in, in my family, my, my wife is a pragmatist. She, everything's black and white. Deadlines have to be met, you know, and, and, and I'm sort of the eternal optimist. And it drives her crazy sometimes because, you know, things happen in, in, in life where you have disappointments. And I'm always like, it's going to be good. Don't worry, it's all good, you know. Uh, and she, how could you be that way? I'm like, this, I, just, I, I always look at life as lemonade, you know, that old saying, right? So I, and, I, and I preach lemonade to my daughter all the time. You know, she, my daughter's a figure skater. So, so she spends three quarters of her life falling down. Every figure skater does. Three quarters of your life falling down for that important moment when you need to hit that jump, right? To get that behind you. So, so she deals with disappointment a lot. So it's all about lemonade, you know? So I, I, I've, of course, made mistakes during my lifetime. You know, I, I, was, uh, I was really bad with deadlines, really bad. And, and, I, and I wish I could blame it on partying or any of that stuff. But I don't do drugs, I don't dr I barely drink, you know? It was just all a matter of my own sort of psychosis of trying to get it, trying to get it so right that I can't let it go. Um, and I look at that, I, I, I'm no longer a problem in that sense, in the deadline sense. I, I, first of all, I married my managing editor, which makes it easy. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I also, you know, I, I learned from a lot of those, those mistakes and I learned about, you know, it's not just, I would get down on myself because I was so late and then that would make me later and later and later. But what I was lost sight of, because, because I, I, I also don't like to disappoint people or fuck with people's lives and mess them up. 
what I was losing sight of is that my lateness would then affect the inker and his salary, the letter and everybody, and all the way down the road to the editors and stuff, and the chain that of stuff that just broke down all the way down. You know what I mean? And those were lessons I learned. But 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 to me, I you know, I, I don't look back on those things as like I would do it, I would do it differently if I could because I, I learned from every one of those things. You know, and there's the, there's that old adage, and I know that, don't know if it's just anything you can take back to your kids, but there, there's that there's a, an adage which I feel is very very true which is the most successful people in life have failed more than most people even try to do anything. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, from Steve Jobs to, to you name it. They, they have a library of failure that would stagger your mind. But like my daughter, three quarters of her life is falling down. You know what I mean? And it's that, it's that, that one quarter, when you hit that jump, when you hit that mark, when you hit that that moment of success, that if you're ready for it, and by the way, that falling down is what prepares you for when you land that one thing and you hit it. Um, when you do, you are prepared then to run with it. Uh, you know, that, like the old saying, there, there, there are no overnight successes. There are people that do hit it overnight, but I, I firmly believe also that your time at the top is directly correlated and attributed to how much time you spent at the bottom. Uh, so I, you know, I, I have a, for, for every cover I do, there is a waste paper basket filled with sketches. I kid you not, the waste paper basket for every single cover. That stuff's valuable. You could sell that, man. Yeah, well, now it's digital, so screw that. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, that's, 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 that's the only thing. I mean, I, I, I say to my daughter and I say to, to any young artist, um, uh, allow yourself to fall down. You know, forgive yourself for it. That's the, that's the other thing. You have to forgive. I couldn't forgive myself. I, and I couldn't, so that would just make it worse. When I learned to forgive myself and learned that every artist has a waste paper basket full of, full of stuff that they threw out before they finished the piece, um, that I was then able to just sort of let it go and just do, you know, just sort of, you know, it's very zen, but, uh, but that's the only thing, just, just, you know, forgive yourself and, and, and make lemonade, man, make lemonade. Well, uh, well first of all, uh, thank you for that. Um, uh, you know, it was, I also, I, I, I don't want to put too much credit on myself for this. I mean, it, it was a huge team of us that, that worked at Marvel and, and, and got hopefully to this point. Um, the people at Marvel will never allow us to get cozy and, and comfortable. Seriously. We, we are, I always consider us, we live like children of the Depression, man, okay? We, <laughs> we, we, we live in a constant state of you got to keep it up. You got to keep going. It's still not good enough. It, it, it can always get better. And, and, and I enjoy that. That's really why, that's why I stay there, you know? Um, I, I, I like that push. Uh, so that, that's, that's the only thing. I, that, that doesn't guarantee you success, right? Because we could still suck at the end of the day. So I just want to make sure, you know, but, but, but I always have that feeling of like, got to keep going, got to keep going. You know what I mean? It's, it's got to get better. So, well, I mean, I, th I think you've seen that there's been a huge influx of not just female characters, but characters of all, you know, Genders, ethnicities, se sexual preferences. I mean, uh, this is this is just you know the way of the world, and, and it, it's one of the things that actually, as a kid, um, made me gravitate towards Marvel Comics because I remember opening my first issue of Fantastic Four, and there was this character called the Black Panther in it, right? So now I'm not obviously I'm not African American, but in my neighborhood where I grew up in Queens, I literally I, I I'll go on. It was like a Benetton ad, okay? All my friends were from all different parts of the world, myself being Cuban. So looking at that. All of a sudden I realized that Marvel, were, were, these are stories that were taking place in my world. 
because that was, it was a, a breakthrough, right? The first African superhero. So we've had a good, a really good history of this. So obviously we could always do better, right? But even through the 70s and 80s, the X-Men became this sort of multi-ethnic team with female characters that were taking prominent and lead roles on that team. Again, breakthrough stuff with Marvel. So we are absolutely always doing this. But the one thing that I, that I always caution about is trying to fill a quota. Because whenever I see a publisher say, okay, we need, we need more Asian characters. So, and you make it a quota, number one, it fails. Number two, it fails because it's not authentic. Three, it's not authentic because it doesn't come out of the natural creative process. What is happening now is that we have creators that it just, it just comes out of the process, right? It's, it's no longer like, we need more female characters. No, it just happens. Um, and and we're, we, we have a lot of success with that. You know, like, again, Ms. Marvel is a perfect example of this, right? Squirrel Girl, perfect example of this, right? And, and, and there's more on the way. So, so are we going to be creating more female characters? We're just going to be creating more characters. Uh, some will be female, some will be male, some will be gay, some will be trans. We don't know. I don't know what the future lies. It's, it's, we're just leaving it up to the writers and the artists. And, uh, and, but I just, 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 it's a natural outcome of socially the world is becoming more, I mean, ethnically the world is becoming more diverse, right? Um, as, as a people, we're more welcoming to diversity. Uh, the youth today, it's all about diversity. So it's just gonna happen, it's just natural. But that's a great question, thank you. Yeah, one of the things that I've really loved that you guys have done is in handing mantles over to other characters, right. you know, you've got a Mexican-American falcon, you've got an Indian-American uh, Ant-Man. You, you're, you're adding these characters in and it's not, it's not box checking. Yeah. You know, it's, you're welcome at the table, why, you know, yeah. why, why haven't we had you at the table Yeah, before? and then at the end of the day, the characters have to stand on their own merit, and, 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 and not even, on, but on the merit also of the people that are creating them, you know? Uh, like, like, I often say, you know, it, when I started at Marvel, there were, there weren't, there still aren't a lot of Latino characters, right? But, but it's growing. Um, and I, I remember getting an email from, uh, from someone saying, you know, hey, why is it that, uh, I forget what was happening in our books, but I think, I think two African-American characters had died. Or so. I, I'm, I'm not placing this in the right time period. But it was about African-American characters. And it, you know, why is it that the African-American character is dying in this particular moment? And I tried to explain that you know, as, as a Latino, uh, what I hope for for Latino characters is that they go through all the permeations that a iconic Marvel character goes through. So when you think about an iconic Marvel character, right? Call it Spider-Man's, Captain America, whatever it may be. They die, they get resurrected, right? Sometimes they die horrible deaths. It's, it's a rite of passage. Until you've died and come back, you're they, not a Marvel character. They're good. They become evil. You know, they have terrible things. And, and the fact, the reason that terrible things happen to these iconic characters is because people want to write them. They want to write those stories. And so the, so as, so the day that there is a super uber prominent Latino character, I'll know it because it will be going through all these permutations. They'll die. They'll get resurrected. They will become a villain. They'll come back a hero. Um, and the reason that happens is because writers, in particular writers, want to write these characters. What happens in a lot of cases is that, and I've seen this happen, it, 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 and, and it, sometimes it scares me, is because the internet, some people on the internet are really sensitive. It happens, right? There's a lot of, a lot of sensitivity, a lot of outrage, uh, sometimes very justified, other times not so much. But what happens is that creators get widgy. They get scared. It happens. So if you have a storyline, and let's say there's a Latino character, and 
the storyline dictates that this character is going to take the brunt of this, is going to die. I've seen second guessing. We're going to be ki killing the Latino character. We're going to get male. And I'm like, you know, just do your story. Don't worry. It's, it's, if, if it fits the story, if you feel that this is the most compelling character to go through this, then do it. But what happens is if we start following those second guessing instincts, those characters, diverse characters who we're afraid may get negative fan mail, don't get used. They get put on the sideline. And before you know it, they're boring and they disappear. Uh, this goes back to the Cyclops thing, you know? A lot of what happened with Cyclops is writers found them kind of boring. They want to add some meat, you know? So these are the tight ropes that we walk, you know? And, and, and my job usually is to sit there and remind creators, no, just go. You, 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 we, we write and we create without fear. We have to go forward and do it this way. You know, I, 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 I can't say never. I honestly can't predict the future. Uh, it, it's, it's a matter of, you know, what the world looks like and what the world wants. Uh, Nick Fury is a great example of that, right? You know, um, so I, I don't know. Honestly, don't. You know, it, it's uh, and the fact that we have characters like Miles, you know, uh, in the same world is phenomenal to begin with. So, uh, so who knows? I honestly, you know, I can't tell you definitively one way I've or the other. I've got a tag for that yeah. to, to wrap us up. Joe has another Q and A tomorrow at one, yep. uh, so you should definitely come to that. He will be taking questions too. Uh, yesterday when I was talking to Stan on stage, somebody brought up, well, you know, why doesn't Peter Parker ever get old? Well, I don't know. I don't know if they're ever going to run out of stories to tell for Peter Parker. Uh, my, my Stan is terrible. Terrible Stan. Terrible. You, you know Stan uh, way better than I do. You've, you've interacted with the man. Uh, you know, what, what, is it, what is it like, uh, you know, being, being the guy who's, who's had the ear of the great creator? I will, uh, well, the one thing you have to understand about, about Spider-Man first, I'm going to answer that two-part question. And uh, like I said, we, you know, we always... We always want our characters to sort of grow with us. And we have to remember that younger generation of fan that's coming in who wants Peter Parker, you know, 15, 16-year-old Peter Parker. So, uh, so that, that's a tightrope that we have to walk. Uh, but I'm going to end on a stand story because you gave me a stand story. So uh, you're setting me up here. <coughs> so Set it up. You knock it out of the box. I need some water here. So going back to my Marvel Knights days, I, I, uh, we, we take over the – we take over – uh, a, a segment of the Marvel office. They gave us an office, actually. They gave us a, they gave us a penthouse office. Uh, <laughs> there was, there was a, at the Marvel building, they had built, there was, a, there was a stairwell that went up to the roof, and they had built like this little shack on the roof that had like three offices. They gave us to us. So we were, we were up on the roof. It was crazy. Um, I remember calling Stan, just cold calling Stan Lee. He had no idea who the hell I was. Introduced myself. And, and I said, Stan, I've got these four pitches for these books, Daredevil, Punisher, right? And I said, do you mind if I read them to you and get your feelings? And he's like, mm. he said, yeah. So I, I read him these pitches. And he just sits there and he listens. I'm, he must have been on the phone for, with me for an hour. And he gives me feedback on each one of them. And then just on a lark, I said, Stan, I've got to ask you, is there a formula to building the perfect Marvel character? Now, that was a rhetorical question. I was not expecting an answer in any way. Let me tell you something, Joey. <laughs> There's a formula. I'm like, holy shit, he's going to give me the formula. <laughs> so I'm ready to write down. He's like, here's what it is. Imagine a panel. It's Spider-Man. He's on the precipice of a building. He's looking over the city. And he jumps. It's pretty cool, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's cool, Sam. <laughs> it's like, nobody gives a shit. 
Jody. It's just a red and blue suit. Tell me who's inside that suit. I'm going to stop doing that. Tell me who's inside that suit. Tell me who it is. Tell me who he loves. Tell me who loves him. Tell me what he does for a living, what his passions are, what his disappointments are, what his failures are. Tell me everything about him. Now when he jumps off the precipice of that building, it's not a red and blue suit. Joey, you're inside with him. You are him. I was like, fuck. <laughs> and then Stan dropped the mic and he hung up. Yeah, that was it. So that's it, guys. Thank you. So I, I, got a, I got a couple of things for you. Some of the folks here were, uh, were with us yesterday, mm -hmm. heard a bit of the origin story of Marvel Knights. One thing I didn't touch on, yeah. a favorite Marvel property of mine that Marvel Knights brought back in a big way, the Inhumans. Inhumans, yeah. One of the most consistently reprinted collections since its original publication. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, you didn't really have any difficulty picking that thing up. Why were the Inhumans important for you to bring back into the fold? Because it was one of those properties, you know, as, as Jimmy and I looked at, looked at all the... the the possible properties we could take, right? We knew there were certain ones that Marvel would just say no to. You're not gonna, you're not gonna get them. Um, and we also felt that we wanted stuff with upside, and we felt that there were there were certain properties that were not being utilized to the best of it. You know, so I was just talking to a fan at the signing I was at. Sorry, I'm trying to catch my breath. I'm just running around. Um, and and he was asking about a particular character. It's like, you know, I, I love this character. Why hasn't why hasn't he popped? You know, it was Hercules for him. And, and I said, you know what? It's our fault. Because um, it's our fault and sometimes it's timing, but, you know, w when every once in a while something like Squirrel Girl, it pops, right? And the reason Squirrel Girl pops is that y you find that right magic alchemy of creative team, but also the timing is right. If Squirrel Girl had been released 10 years ago, 10 years ago, humor comics weren't really selling. Now, comics like Deadpool, Squirrel Girl, those kind of books, they actually make money. Yeah, you can you can do a Hellcat book and yeah. and sell the crap out of right. it. Right. So 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 sometimes it's timing. Most of the time it's just us. You know, it's not for lack of trying, but you know, no baseball. So you don't hit the ball every time, right? So you hit three out of ten times, you get a base hit, uh, and that's if you're successful. So um, so with the Marvel Knights characters, we, we we looked at them. We're like, okay, so you know what? We feel that there's characters that are the construction of them. There's something really great in there that we think that we could bring out. Uh, and also their characters that just either have been canceled or haven't sold. And in humans, Marvel has tried relaunching in humans for decades, and it just it just doesn't grab hold. But we felt there was something there, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we chose them because it was a lot of upside. You know, uh, the downside was well, it was just it was just selling as shitty as it used to. Uh, and then we we found a, you know a great creative team, and they knocked it out of the park. And now in humans is becoming a big part of our publishing program. And uh, you know, so that, that's kind of how it came about. We've got, we've got Inhumans on TV, something that I never yeah. thought that I would see as a kid. We've got this big, huge, connected universe. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you've got control of all the toys in the toy box, and you mentioned yesterday that when, when you pitched Marvel Knights, you said, let's, let's overshoot. Let's yeah. say, give us the whole line. Give yeah. us everything. Yeah. After Marvel Knights started to have some success, were you having more thoughts of, you know, this is what I would be doing if they would... Just let me dip my hand into this other side of the toy box and let me do this and let me do this. No, I mean, look, you know, we, we were happy. Again, I, I, I went in there with a lot of knowledge of, I, I've been a fan and I've been on the other side of the table, right? And Marvel had a, had a trend 
You know, they, especially especially during the '90s when the collector's boom was happening. If Marvel had a hit, right? If if the hit was Crayon Guy, well, in about three months there were going to be you know a crayon box full of comics, right? All just for lack of a better word, whoring that idea out until within a year it would just be gone. You know, uh, so when we started Marvel Knights, you know, we, we also said to Marvel, uh, we're only doing four books, and we want it to stay at four books. We don't want more because uh, it'll dilute. And 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 Jimmy and I, our team, and, and my wife at the time, we could only handle this much and keep control of it, uh, keep the quality up. Once we go beyond that, it starts to get a little rigid. So here, here's a funny story for people to know. Um, Daredevil 1 comes out. I'm sorry, no, the sales come in for Daredevil 1. It isn't out yet. And it's through the roof, right? And, oh, th- and this was the guarantee I had with Marvel. I said, I said we control this imprint, right? When, when our contract's done, you guys can do whatever the hell you want. It's yours. But while we're here, and it was a handshake, there was nothing contractual. So, gentlemen's agreement. Gentlemen's agreement. So the sales are through the roof. So. My girlfriend, who was actually my wife at the time, uh, she does all the production work. She does everything for us. And she comes into my office, and she's like, why didn't you tell me you were doing Moon Knight? What are you talking about? She's like, I was just down in production, and there's a Marvel Knights, you know, those little icons that we created. It's a Moon Knight icon. We're doing a Moon Knight book. Uh, No, we're not. So... We ran down to production, and there's this Moon Knight icon. And then I run into the editor-in-chief's office. I'm like, what's going on? And they decided that they had had this, this old – it was an old story. Not old. I mean, I don't know how long it was in inventory, but it was like a four-issue miniseries by Doug Mensch and drawn by Mark Texera. Great creators, right? And um, you were working with Mark already on Black Panther. Right. And, and that was part of it as well. But a story that we had never read, we had nothing to do with, we had no input on it at all, and they were just going to slap the, the, the Marvel Knights logo on it. Like, and I was like, this is exactly what you guys do, and we're not, we're not going to do it. And it was a huge meeting. It was a huge – I mean, it was, it was editor-in-chief. It was like senior, senior salespeople. Everybody was in this meeting, and, and we're, we're like, you know, we're, we're just not doing this. We're, we're not doing it. We will walk right now. Hmm. Um, and they ended up, they put out the Moon Knight, but they didn't put it out with the Marvel Knights. And I, and I consider that, and actually one of the real turning points was that there was a sales and marketing guy, a very senior sales and marketing guy there, who did quit. He said, F this shit. If this is the way we're going to run things, I'm out. And he was a good friend of mine. And, uh, and I went to his office. I'm like, are you doing this? He's like, yeah, I'm out. Uh, I'm like, well, why? He's like, well, you know, a number of things. This this was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back, but also you know I, I'm not going to come back here until they offer me the publisher's gig, and that was Dan Buckley who ended up being my publisher. He came back, mm. you know. Uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll never forget that Dan. I mean, Dan just really stood. Look, stood if you love something, let it go. You know, I, but he had the same philosophy as we did, which was just like you know, if you got something really great, cultivate it. If you want to build it, build it slowly. Just don't start slapping stuff on it. And again, the, the stuff that was making Marvel Knights special, it had nothing to do with it. And that's no slight to those guys. It could have been the greatest story ever. But it wasn't ours. Uh, and it was a pivotal moment because if we had let that go, before you know it, there would have been a million Marvel Knights books. Yeah. But anyway, so we tried to keep the imprint as small as possible. And then, and then I think what did happen eventually was that 
management realized that we weren't going to go and 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 take it, but they, they they said, hey, how about if we give you a fifth book to do? How about if we give you a sixth book to do? And then it got to the point where it wasn't even quite like, how about you? You're going to, and, and, you know, it, it, as a packager, this meant more money for us, but as a, as a as an editor and manager of an imprint, it was difficult, and it was characters that I, I started to feel like, well, these aren't really Marvel Knights characters, but it's the only thing that's really kind of selling right now. So so it, it, it did start to, I think, weaken the imprint a little bit, you know? Uh, but we didn't have aspirations. Getting back to your question, we had no aspirations to go beyond four titles. We wanted to keep it small and condensed and live in our corner of the universe and just knock it out of the park. I mean, for, it was also hard enough because every one of our scripts, at that point, they had hired Chris Claremont as a story consultant, in-house story consultant. Every one of our scripts had to be read by Chris and come back to us with notes. And love Chris to death, but sometimes we weren't sympathetical on this stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you don't understand. The note you're giving me is a, is a, is a, is a Marvel universe note. The way you guys do your books, it's not the way that these books are supposed to feel and, and be. You know, it's like the difference between, you know, this is a Netflix thing. We yeah, can do this. It's a difference you know? between yeah. Flight of and Bones listen, we, and the current Doctor Strange. We shared Strange them because the stuff, you know, in retrospect, it's tame. But back then, it was getting edgy. You know, it was very edgy for Marvel, who, who, you know, there was still a new, a new stand business. You have to be careful with that sort of stuff. So we were we were definitely skirting the line. So uh, it was it was you know a bit nerve wracking for them too, but yeah. So the the aspirations. Neither Jimmy nor I ever had aspirations to become editor in chief or run Marvel, but we we did go out there with that first offer and say, "Yeah, give us everything." You know, okay, then just give us four. <laughs> you know, some something that that feels to me like uh, like was a a shadow. You know, the Marvel Knights mentality that you guys have done recently is what you've done with the Star Wars imprint. No. Oh. You've got you've got this concentrated. You've got this ongoing, this ongoing, and a rotating miniseries, right. and just do those right. Right, and and also you know put high level creative on it. That's the other thing. You know there there, there are so many brilliant and talented people who want to work in that universe. You know I wanted to do covers for Star Wars. And when I heard it, like I need a cover, I want one cover. Let me draw Luke, please. Uh, so so yeah, I mean it, it's it's it is it is a philosophy that we've we've carried over from Marvel Knights. But, but again, Dan Buckley as our publisher and, and as our president, uh, uh, you know, he, he understands that as well. That, you know, you, 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 there are times you can expand, there are times you need to contract and, you know, try to keep things as special as possible. Well, you know, with, with Daredevil Father, Daredevil Father was actually a, a I've never reread it because it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, an emotional story for me of, of because of when I, where and when I created it. Um, when I, I, I don't write a lot of comic stories, when I write a comic story, it's because I, I have the ending. I know what the ending is. And with Daredevil Father, I had, you know, I'm, after reading so many issues of Daredevil, I was like, you know, we never answered this one question, which is at the very end of the story. Uh, I don't want to spoil for anybody if you guys read it, but it, it's, you know, uh, it, was, it was an obvious question. It was never answered. So... So I started there, and, 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 and with the idea of fathers and Matt Murdock and his father and other characters that were tied into the legacy of their fathers. And I had just, you know, I was, I, my daughter was very young, so I was just entering fatherhood myself and, you know, sort of, sort of uh, you know, staring down the barrel of, of the finality of life and then realizing that the only legacy I really could leave behind, F the comics, F everything, is her, you know, uh, and how she lives her life. And how what I do affects her. Um, so then my dad got sick, 
uh, my dad ended up in a hospital. And uh, I ended up sitting in the hospital room with him uh, for seven straight days. I would take a couple of breaks here and there to catch a nap. But uh, I brought my laptop with me, and I wrote all of Daredevil's Father in those seven days. And my father would always be so instrumental in my creative and, and encouraging me to be an artist and to be creative and do all this stuff. Um, while he wasn't feeling well and struggling to breathe, uh, took a lot of joy out of watching me sitting there and writing and doodling and writing and doodling and doing what I did as a little kid. Uh, sorry, I'm a little bit uh, <laughs> So uh, I finished the story and I had to go back to New York. Uh, and I had, and my dad, I'm sorry, my dad lived in, did, lived in Florida and he lived in New York. And I finally, and during those seven days, I convinced my dad to sell his house and come live with us, come live with me and, 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 your, and your granddaughter. And he finally said, okay, okay. So uh, he, he was on the mend, he was getting a little bit better. I talked to the doctor, said, how many days before he, he could come out? He's like, you'll be ready to be here for another two or three days. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm gonna go back to New York, um, get a couple of things straight, and I'm coming back, I'm gonna bring him back to New York with me, we're gonna sell his house, the whole thing. So I flew to New York, uh, landed, got home, uh, talked to my wife about bringing you know, Dad in, you know, we have the space, the whole thing. We went to bed, three o'clock in the morning, I get a call, he's died in his hospital. And, uh, you know, I, I wish I'd stayed the extra day, but I couldn't make it. You know, I just, I, it was just luck of the draw. Who knew, right? He actually was getting better, and I just had a heart attack, and he passed away that night. But uh, so much of Daredevil Father, you know, it, it's uh, it, it was about him and the fact that I was able to do that for him, that I was able to do this as a career, was due to him. And then so, you know, and the echoes of that dad and stuff and, and even that final scene where, where, where Jack Murdoch is holding little Matt Murdoch, uh, that's, that's me and my daughter. My daughter posed for her, so she did that stuff that time, you know. And uh, so, yeah, so th there's a lot of personal stuff, even though my dad was in a boxer doing, you know, slap over that kind of <laughs> stuff. Uh, but, uh, but thank you. That was, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a personal story to me in a lot of ways, you know. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I really haven't written anything quite like that, you know, since. I don't, I don't think. Someday i got to read it back. I'm just afraid I'm going to go, I can't leave this thing. It's funny. You know, so, yeah. But thank you. Um, spinning both of the plates at once. Yeah, you know, I, I actually, Daredevil Father was the first time that I actually, I co-wrote with Jimmy Palmiotti when we did Ash. Dare, and, I, and I've written for other people. I wrote for Josh Reynolds when we did NYX and stuff. Uh, I'd never written 100% for me to 100% draw. So Daredevil Father was the first time I did that. Um, and, and, and being the fact that I'm on salary at Marvel, I don't get paid for my freelance, uh, I just said, you know what, if I want to do a double-page spread, I'm going to do a double-page spread, I don't care, you know? Uh, so it was, it was actually very, very liberating to do that. Um, but, you know, I, I, and I, I had a chance to work with Grant Morrison a couple of years ago on, a, on an 11-page story, and that's always fun. Um, but I do, I eventually do want to maybe write something. I, I'm actually working on a little something. It's a very slow burn thing that, um, where I'm writing and I'm going.
but I'm sure it'd be both, you know. So yeah, to answer the question, I'm not sure if it's the so john finally the the secret history of marvel knights uh various things i mean as i was on stage with him that you know blew my hair back i i loved that the passage of time allowed for stuff like reverse engineering teaching kevin smith how to write comics ending up resulting in them going to the marvel method that even by then nobody was really doing uh so much anymore um and then that ended up paving the way for that just flowing the way that it needed to uh, because Kassad had been doing so much. I mean, he could just start drawing and, and you know, from an outline and let the dialogue come in mm -hmm. uh, later on. Um, you know, the, 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 the interesting um, tie to all this is that I was in high school at the time and had gotten in touch with Kasada, sent an email to his event comics email address and he sent me scans of the second issue of Daredevil pencils. Um, and I, I, was, I was doing a class project in Spanish class about an artist of Spanish descent. And everybody was doing famous painters. And I was like, well, I'll do a comic book artist. I'll do this Cuban-American dude. And, um, and my teacher, the class, they were all like, oh, P research projects are usually bullshit. This is incredibly interesting. Wow. And he started out, you know, in music and all this other stuff. Um, so I, th this was a huge closing loop, full circle kind of a thing for me, because not only did that make me a Marvel fan for life, but I, 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 I am so deeply influenced by storytelling techniques that I saw, for example, in Chris Priest's run on Black Panther in that still brilliant Inhumans miniseries that I, you know, maybe maybe a 12 issue mini is is the ideal way to handle some of your some of your most vaunted characters in the canon uh what, what was some some stuff that uh, that stood out to you listening to uh to this stuff when i passed it over to you oh gosh um i you can jump to something else don't we, worry about it yeah we'll look at the timestamp because i'm like i yeah, don't fine. remember that's the fine, conversation fine, fine. dude i'm sorry no that's fine um just jump to whatever you want to talk about uh hold on i'm throwing i'm i was thinking because i was like what did talk work about stuff? That you don't have that to stuff. just ignore the question like it didn't happen because i'm cutting it out did you, you know, want to bring think, up the, the notion of definitive work i think that when you're looking at his uh body of work the the takeaway that you have is that he may have been the best colorist of the mario comic books published by valiant uh, bar none. Yeah, hands Stone Cold. Down. I mean, forget it. No, no competition. I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. No, am I kidding? Maybe you know he, he. No, he was the best. We'll say that definitively. Yeah. He was the best. Yeah. But they can I, use that as a pull quote. Even, even though I brought it up as a joke, I, we'll leave that. We'll let it stand. It'll, he, yes, Joe Casada is definitively the best Mario colorist ever. Um, so that that deep cut joke but, aside, yeah, there is some deep cut stuff yeah, and, that, and it, that you mentioned well, specifically. You want to talk about? Yeah, they're still pulling from him creatively on the DC side, and you know, I don't know if that's a DC Marvel thing. Like, it's their way to go. Uh, we had Casada work for us, so we're still going to use Casada's bits. But for instance, Ray is a big part of like the CW mm -hmm. shows. He's yeah. got his own series on CW Seed. And Casada had a hand in revitalizing that character in the early '90s. Uh, video game fans um, know the world of Batman primarily from the, the different Arkham games, and part of those games includes uh, um, Azrael. And 
you know, the thing that put Casada on the map back in the day was the Sword of Azrael miniseries, which served as sort of a uh, a prequel to what they ended up doing with the Batman character just a few years later. But that sort of that sort of Azrael Batman mini is uh, is still feels to me like a, a almost like an overlooked uh, like you know great moments in Batman history type book and yeah. And it really established his style as well that he then carried on through X Force and then through. And I, I don't know Ash, that it's been. I don't like know that. that it's been reprinted in collected form in some time. Even though DC is allegedly just so great at their book program, they're very good at, at producing seven different iterations of Hush. Um, but I, the last time I actually saw that, I, I was at a half price books and saw the from when it was first collected trade paperback mm. on the shelf. Um, so tracking it down actually may be more difficult than, than you'd think in this age of, you know, everything's easy to get. Um, yeah, I, the, the thing that, the thing that I find the most interesting and fascinating about Joe is that though I knew him in a very barely at all sense in the late nineties, um, even as he has, he has charged up the staircase of power, uh, relatively speaking, these many years later, it, it feels like he is very much still the guy that he was 20 years ago when they were scratching out their corner of Marvel that they could get their hands on. Um, and he's he's interested and excited in opportunities to take these characters to a new level. Well, I want to know, like, now that now that Disney has come in and Marvel has changed and, and since Marvel now... Um, they've gone through a, a few different publishing initiatives where they've tried to refresh the line. They've been doing it on almost like a kind of a semi-annual basis. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I kind of am curious, I, I would want to know like, what is the day in the life of Joe Quesada? Like, I want to know what his, what his work day is like, because there was a time when I could probably more easily envision that. Like when he was editor in chief, right, but, but then when you, when you become something like a chief creative officer and you're dealing with the Netflix shows, the ABC mm -hmm. shows, uh, the animated shows, the games division, and just all uh, touching all of the different um, uh, tentacles of the Hydra, as it were. Yeah. Um, you, you've, I, I can't imagine uh, how uh, how controlled his attention span has to be <laughs> to be able to keep up with all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I will be speaking with him again uh, relatively soon. Fan Expo Dallas at the beginning of April. Uh, he's going to be uh, one of the guests there. We're going to be there. Uh, you're going to be hosting some panels. I'm going to be hosting some panels. Uh, Paul Rubens is there. Cast of Back to the Future is there. Um, Je Jeff Goldblum is uh, is going to be there uh, doing things. Um, it's going to be a big, crazy show uh, with, with a ridiculous comics guest list, a ridiculous celebrity guest list, um, and all kinds of shenanigans. Um, so... I, I don't know. I, I I very well may follow up with him on exactly that note of of what is a day in the life of him like, and of course the Fox acquisition has has not finalized and closed yet, um, so he may not be able to say much about that. But um, as you know, from a uh, socioeconomical standpoint, <laughs> I have various issues with enormous mega companies merging, um, but. Uh, at the end of the day, you and I don't really have that much control over that stuff. So it's it's kind of stuff that I would like to take a principled stand on, but it's more something that I can have an opinion about. Um, and separate from that, talk about the dynamics of 
what that means for different things. You know, does it mean that we are finally going to, you know, see uh, see see the Fantastic Four and the X Men and the various properties controlled by Fox um, more fully embraced um, on the on the publishing and TV sides of things? Um, you know, what what does this mean for all that stuff? Um, and who knows? In a couple months, we may actually have more detail on that. Um, but those, the scale of the deal, it, it's going to take forever to close. So, you know, I don't want to get people's hopes up that, you know, suddenly you're going to get a roadmap for how all kinds of stuff is going to change. Um, but the thing that I learned and the thing that I think comes across in the audio from a year and a half ago is that even on stuff that Joe cannot necessarily directly comment on, he gets why people are concerned. He gets why people want to know something and, and will do his best to find something to give people uh, to reassure them about the direction that things are going for the characters that they care so much about. John, it's been a while. You still have the same Twitter handle? I do. I can be found on Twitter at Golson, G-H-O-L-S-O-N. Same thing on Instagram? Uh, yeah, same thing on Instagram. Do you, do you post uh, Instagram stories of your sweet little kitty? I, I do on occasion. Uh, I, I take a lot of photos during cons as well. I mean, you know that, but yeah. I... I take a lot of pictures of all the stuff that we see and do uh, I, at, I, at the convention. I finally joined Instagram, uh, same handle as my Twitter, uh, Moises Chu, M-O-I-S-E-S-C-H-I-U. I've only got four photos as of this moment, but there, there, there's going to be more in there. I've been, I've been, I've been taking my time, been making sure that I, I, I get it right and don't, and don't screw up the social. Um, and uh, and of course, if you want to support the show, just tell a friend, uh, bring us new listeners, retweet it, spread it around. Uh, rate and review us on iTunes on any uh, podcast indexing places that you know of, uh, that sort of thing. If there's stuff that you'd like to hear us cover on the show, we got a feedback form at esn.fm uh, that you can fill out. Uh, you can tweet at us, you know, just uh, just whatever you want. And uh, especially in this in this new renewed uh, phase of the show, as we are right on the heels of episode 50, coming right after this one, um, I, I I might uh, I might just send a, a nice uh, box uh, care package. Of various things that uh, that that are that are just filling up the shelves here here in the studio, um, to to uh, to a listener that, uh, that that does a particularly good job of spreading the word, giving us some love, whatever it is. I, I say filling the shelves, and John's looking at me weird because the shelves are literally <laughs> empty right now. They didn't have to know that. They didn't. No, it's audio. This they is don't the, have to know. This is the behind the okay. curtain right. look that you get for being a loyal John size uh -huh. listener. Um, so yeah. Um, we're, we're sitting here laying down the tracks for the next few episodes uh, so you can expect something fresh and hot delivered weekly um, uh, for, for the rest of the year. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's a lot of stuff that we have been um, storing up and saving, uh, John. Is, is there anything in particular uh, that's, that's coming up of, of these episodes that we've talked about that you're really excited about digging into? Oh, gosh. Um... I am interested. I'm I'm interested in hearing the Starlin shooter talk. I've never actually heard or read an interview with Starlin. Uh, I've read like little small pieces that Starlin has spoken up. Like you know, yeah. somebody's interviewing about a particular subject and they happen to get him for a quote. Like you know, somebody's writing about death in the family and so he'll mention his work on it. But I've never actually read like an in-depth interview with Starlin. Uh, so here, I, I probably am most looking forward to listening to the the shooter Starlin 
audio. Well, uh, as a tease for that, the thing that I found most interesting was, you know, I walked up to his table and was talking to him and he was, he, he, not all comics people are super socially fluid. Yeah. Well, that's, you, you know, have to, you have to, if you're choosing to work in that profession, a lot of times you're someone who is 100% comfortable being isolated yeah. away from other people for, you know, 10 hours a day, every day. Yeah, not not so. everybody is like, uh, you know, friend of the show, friend of ours, Val Merrick, who's, you know, part carnival barker, part, you know, mm -hmm. uh, comics artist. Uh, and Starlin was 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 just kind of a, 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 a reticent talker. But pairing him with Jim Shooter, ostensibly hosting, interviewing him, somebody that he worked with extensively and knows very well it completely changed everything i mean it, it was it was listening into two guys shooting the shit and telling stories from the old days um and it, it was it was great it was fascinating um and the 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 lead off of that discussion um i found i found hilarious uh where starlin while he was serving the armed forces would send in um portfolio type pieces to marvel uh you know hey i want to work i want to draw for you guys and uh, and he said that at one point he got a nice note back from Herb Trimpey, uh, you know, co-creator of Wolverine, um, and uh, you know, fr friend of the show who who uh, who who is on the show uh, many 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 moons ago, um, uh, before his uh, his untimely passing. Uh, I, I I love that we that we've managed to capture so many uh, of those kinds of conversations with people that. Um, you know, uh, that are that are of a particular generation before people just don't get to hear them. It, it, it's weird because, you know, Howard Chaikin, Val Merrick, Walt Simonson, Bernie Wrightson, like all these dudes that were that were coming up at about the same time have these interesting intersecting stories um, or fragments of stories that one of the others picks up and tells uh, that that uh, I think people people will hear actually specifically some of that in episodes coming up over the next few months. Uh, so not to overstay our welcome. Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for sticking with us. Uh, we will be back next week uh, with, uh, with another episode of Giant Size. Thank you, John. Thank you.